been talking about living the extraordinarily blessed life. And I'm not even going to put the scriptures on the, on the board, but Psalms chapter number one, our familiar text there, blessed is the man, tree planted by the rivers of water, so forth. Psalms 92, I'm not going to use that either, but um, they will be bear fruit in old age, fresh and flourishing, talking about the person planted in God's house. I want to go straight to the text that I will be using, but do understand that those two verses, passages, I should say, that consist of a number of verses that I just briefly alluded to are the foundational premise for everything that I'm talking about when I say that I believe it's God's will that we live lives that are extraordinarily blessed. And to do that, there are some things that do need to happen because many of us are the instruments of our own self-destruction. I'm serious. I deliberately mentioned that I've been in ministry 47 years. That's long enough for me to have watched what happens in my own life and long enough for me to have watched what happens in the lives of thousands of people that I've counseled during the years. And trust me when I tell you that more Times than not, when you got to the core problem that people were struggling with, wasn't the devil. It was something on the inside that kept pulling them down. And they didn't understand it, didn't know why it was there, and didn't know how to get free from it. In Romans 7, 15, I've read this earlier in the last series that I've just concluded on the fruit of the Spirit. See if this sounds familiar. For what I am doing, I do not understand. That's the Apostle Paul. For what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. What Paul is saying is, you see, the law doesn't change anything. It doesn't fix problems. It just creates penalties severe enough that you don't want to break it. <laughs> this is why I laughed during this whole election cycle. It's really gotten sad. Everybody looking to a particular government or candidate to fix everything. It never has fixed everything. All government does is impose laws, and those laws usually have penalties that if you break them, they're severe enough that you don't want to break them. You don't want to run the risk. But it doesn't change your heart. You can pass all the laws on racism you want to. It's not going to make anybody love anyone. Just make them not say some of the stuff they used to say, but the feeling and all that animosity can still be there. And this is what Paul is saying. That if I'm doing what I don't want to do, the law is actually a good thing because it imposes penalties that make me not want to have to pay the price for violating them. But now it is no longer I who do it when I break these things, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Now, that's the Apostle Paul, baby. Those of us who have not yet attained to his level, I can assure you 
that if in his flesh there was nothing good, I dare say without risk of contradiction from anyone in this congregation, neither is there anything good in ours. He says, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Amen. Can you sense the struggle in this man's heart, the great apostle Paul, as he wrestles with something on the inside that he sees is trying to destroy his success, his happiness, his ministry. And if you do, the question then begs to be asked, is he unique in that regard? Is he the only one? Or is it possible that those of us in this building might also be going through the same struggle? Jesus said in John 8, 31 through 32, then Jesus said to those disciples who believed him, Notice who they were, those Jews who believed him. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I would like for you to notice that Jesus was speaking to his disciples, Jews that believed on him, not to strangers or to pagans or to agnostics or to unbelievers. He was talking to people who believed him. He was promising Notice this, disciples, not unbelievers, that if they continued in his word, something marvelous would happen. What is that? They would come to know the truth, and the truth would set them free. And it's really important that we understand this progression that is here, because most of us have bought into this idea, and it does happen to some people, that the moment you get saved, you're radically transformed, and you lose all desire to ever do wrong again And I wish it were that way. But the truth of the matter is, that's just the start of the journey that we call discipleship. Amen. Somebody else can say, "But, but it's natural, it's normal for me to want to do these things. I mean, I'm a normal human being. These are my my impulses and normal human thoughts. Yeah, arsenic is normal. But go drink it and see if it doesn't kill you. So a strychnine, that's normal. Cyanide, they exist in nature. But just because it's natural doesn't mean you want to do it. There's some perfectly natural stuff that will blow your life apart. Gravity is a natural law. That doesn't mean you can step off the edge of the Grand Canyon and survive it, though. You hear what I'm saying? When you become a believer... What happens is you begin a process whereby as you study the word of God, continuing to abide in his word, you come to know the truth. The truth is a progressive revealing, an unveiling of the principles of God that bring you into a place where you're living the extraordinarily blessed life. And as a result of this process of hungering for God and his word, And learning more and more of the truth, you begin to break away from more and more of the things that have held you back. In other words, being set free is not necessarily 
an instantaneous event. Your salvation is, but being set free isn't. But being set free is the result of a process that in turn is affected by how much truth you come to know. And I say that it is affected by how much truth you know because truth you don't know doesn't do anything for you. I need a better amen. You say, but the truth is going to help me. Not if you don't know it. No more than a cure for a disease helps you as long as it's sitting on the shelf in the pharmacy. Until you take it and apply it, it doesn't fix your disease or your sickness. And in similar fashion, the truth of God's word must be sought out and applied to our lives. It must be grasped and understood for it to be of any value. And this is a process. Salvation is instantaneous. But this is why you need as much of God and as much of his word as you can get. And somebody said, but we already have all the God we need. Really? No, you see, what you fail to understand is God makes himself available, but we don't make ourselves available. We hold part of our heart back. And it's in serving God that we learn to let go. When we say we need more of you, Tommy Tenney was with us here last Sunday. And Tommy, I think, briefly mentioned that seeking after God, more of God is a perfectly biblical doctrine and gave verses they told me about it. Someone was sharing with me what he had taught. And that really is the truth. Because when you seek more of God, what you're saying is less of me, Lord. Because right now I've got all of me sitting on this throne. But I need more of you. I'm saved, but I need more of you sitting on the throne of my life. And I want to start talking today about how to be set free from yourself. Father, I'm asking that you would speak a word to us. Lord, open our understanding that, that we can grasp that truth that sets us free. Most of us here today, if not all of us, are already believers and born again, but we're disciples, but that doesn't mean that we're really free in the sense of things that hold us back. Because I've watched it during all these years of serving you that people get held back in their careers, their ministries, their anointings, their family, their business, their finances, not because you aren't desiring to bless them because you are but because something on the inside won't let them achieve what you planned for them. So teach us today, I ask, and everybody said, in Jesus' name. In this series, we will be talking about which one of three enemies is your greatest enemy. The Bible actually teaches that you have three enemies. They are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, James 4, verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What James, the apostle, is warning us of is that if you're not careful, you and your desire to connect with a world around you and be accepted because underneath all of this is the need for acceptance. You will choose the acceptance of men rather than the acceptance of God. 
and you'll compromise your values and your beliefs and your integrity and, and so forth. And that puts you on the wrong side of the line in the sand from where God is standing. The world is an enemy. All of us deal with it every day. The world could be a political system. God knows we've seen a lot of that going on in terms of this political season on both sides. Are you sick of all that yet? Fed up to here. Amen. And I laugh because, again, people think that government is going to bring a utopia. No, they, they won't. They can pass a bunch of laws. But only God can change and get inside of your heart. Amen. The second enemy is your own flesh, and that has to do with your desires, your will, and your mind. Listen to Romans 8, 5 through 7. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the Spirit, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. You see that? Your mind is going to become focused on either things of the flesh, which is your desires, your will, your thoughts, or they will become focused on things that are spiritual. For to be carnally minded, Paul says, is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Amen. You have two enemies right there, the world and your own flesh, that are warring against you. And the third enemy, and I want to say this clearly, and I make no Apologies for it, because these days the idea of an actual devil is being poo-hooed and laughed at. I want to tell you the third enemy is the devil. And I don't care what they taught you in science or physics or anything else, just because you haven't seen the devil doesn't mean he's not real. I'm in parts of the world where genocide has occurred. Hundreds of thousands, millions have been killed. There is no way to describe what's happening in our world right now other than that there is a malevolent, vicious force of unmitigated evil that is trying to destroy humanity. You can call it anything you want to call it, but at the underneath it is the devil. How do I know there is a devil? Matthew 13 and the famous parable where Jesus talks about the goodman went to this effort to buy good seed, and they prepared the field, and he sowed good seed, remember? And then during the night, an enemy came and sowed tares. And as the wheat began to come up out of the ground, the way you know that there are tares is the tares is a noxious weed that if left mixed with the wheat, when it is reaped, will spoil the whole thing. Amen. I love Indian food. And maybe somebody can tell me what these little round green things are. They're, they, they're not like a pea. It's a husk. And I love the flavor it gives to the food. But, buddy, you bite down on one of those things. It ruins the whole palau. Amen. If you don't know what palau is or biryani, shame on you. Amen. You're missing out on some good food. But let me tell you, use the seed, but take it out before you eat it. And it was just like that with, with tares. When the tares would start growing, they would grow faster than the wheat, and they would stand up way above the wheat, and therefore the servants knew they looked just like wheat, but because of the way they grew, the servants of the master knew that 
tares had been put into the field. And so they went to the master in Matthew 13. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? And Jesus said, No, leave them for right now. And when it's harvest season, we'll laboriously pull them out. But if you go trampling through the field right now, you'll uproot the wheat. And sometimes God allows tares to grow right there in the middle of the wheat so that people can go grow. But in the harvest season, those are separated. And what you need to see here is that when it came to attributing blame or assigning blame, Jesus said the culprit is the enemy. I have listened to countless numbers of people through the years blame their problems on the devil. I've heard people say, God took my baby. They don't know, really know who to blame. They blame their problems on the devil, but then the big, big stones, the big issues, they turn around and blame God. I have cancer. God, why'd you let me get cancer? And they blame God. God, you made me lose my health, my finances, my career. They blame their little daily problems on the devil. But the big problems, they always lay them at the foot of God. And I've tried to help people see through the years from this passage that all God ever did in your life was plant good things. It's the enemy that came and sowed tares in your life. And you may have to let the tares grow with the wheat. That is, you're not going to have heaven down here. God didn't cause cancer. The world he created, there was no cancer. And guess what? In the world God created, there was total employment. Ask Adam and Eve. Everybody had a job. Nobody lacked anything. Don't blame all this stuff on God. An enemy hath done this. But I lost my marriage. It wasn't God. An enemy hath done this. I lost my health. It wasn't God. An enemy hath done this. I need somebody to say amen. I had a nervous breakdown. It wasn't God. It was an enemy that caused these things to happen in your life. Amen. And to further this point, Ephesians chapter 6, to saints, Paul writes, put on the whole armor of God. This is a war that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, notice this, principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of the, this age. And he is literally using Greek words that describe a hierarchy in the spiritual dimension of lower level demons, their supervisors, and then regional commanders, and finally all the way up to the big boy himself. And Paul is saying that you've got to wrestle against these, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, meaning in the heavenly sphere. All of that is directed and orchestrated from the spiritual dimension. And when you begin to live for God, you find out there's a devil. Amen. He was there all along. Well, when you weren't living for him, you didn't know where the problem was coming from. And don't make any mistake. I'm not saying because you live for God, it gets harder, it gets easier. The Bible said that it's the way of the transgressor that is hard. It's just you find out when you come to God who your enemy's been all these years. Amen. Somebody say, praise the Lord. 
You understand what I'm saying? You have three enemies, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Guess who the biggest enemy you face is? We always want to say it's the devil and the world. No. The truth is the devil and the world are using you to bring about your own destruction, to circumvent your own prosperity, your own happiness, to cause you the problems that you face. I love the story, and I've shared it with you before. The pastor who was in hospital visitation until, you know, on the way to church, he got caught up in traffic and got there late. And when he drove up in the church parking lot, they were having church inside the building, and he saw the devil leaning on the outside of the building, sobbing, crying, just pounding on the brick walls. Oh! And he was, it was, his heart was breaking. And the pastor, a compassionate man, got out of the car and said, I never thought I'd ever feel sympathy for you, devil. But he said, you're crying like your heart is broken. What is the matter? And the devil said, pointed in the building, he said, you're people. And the pastor said, what do you mean? And he said, they're having testimony service. Y'all remember testimony services? They're having testimony service. And you ought to hear all the stuff they're blaming me for that I didn't have one thing to do with. (laughs) Amen. We blame the devil, and a lot of times, as T.D. Jake says, your biggest enemy is the enemy in a me. Amen. 1886, Robert Louis Stevenson published his most famous work. You remember him from high school, right? The novella entitled The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It immediately became a runaway bestseller. In fact, this mesmerizing tale was so well received that to date it has been adapted to stage and film over 120 times. Just that story. That doesn't even count the countless other stories that have also been created boring from the theme of this fascinating novella. And innumerable, book, innumerable books have also been written talking about the major plot in this story, the familiar plot, the theme of good and evil wrestling for dominance within the same person. And the reason it was so well received and is even to this day is because it's something every person in this building understands. And we are entertained with countless novels from people like John Grisham and James Lee Burke and others celebrated authors who have kept us entertained with their stories of judges, attorneys, doctors, policemen, criminals, housewives, businessmen, and politicians, and average Joes who discovered they possessed a capacity to tear down their own lives that they didn't even know existed within them bring about their own destruction and the destruction of everything they had ever dreamed of. And for some, like Dr. Hannibal Lecter, there's a name from the past. Evil took over so completely that they became synonymous with evil personified. When you look at the major themes that are on the silver screen right now, Hollywood has churned out so many movies without number that have mesmerized and enthralled audiences with this story and the reason they appeal so much is because we relate so quickly to the theme. Screenwriters and directors have devoted entire careers to capturing on film the obsession we have with this complex idea that man could actually possess both a divine and a lawless nature. 
that if left to itself will go on to destroy the person that it lives inside of. There's an endless offering of productions in your home every single week across the silver screen, offered on television, HBO, Showtime, and countless other venues that portray this ongoing struggle that every one of us face. And we relate to it, as I said, so well. Because the thought of someone good, a good person, a good man, a good woman, struggling against inner impulses to do things that end up pulling them down is a fight every one of us face. We relate to the enigma of being good but having something on the inside that wants to pull us down. The very phrase Jekyll and Hyde has come to refer somehow to this theme that exists and the possibility that good people can have something hidden within them that really is very self-destructive and wrong. And like Dr. Jekyll, who went to school and university and spent years studying and then years practicing and, and years healing his community, we want to do good and we've spent lifetimes trying to do what's right and like Paul. But then like the good doctor we find ourselves sometimes giving in to and feeding a thirst like Dr. Jekyll did. A thirst that exists on the inside that when we give in to it causes the fallen nature to rear its ugly head and gain control over us. And to our dismay, what Paul is saying is man's natural state is to work against his own success and happiness. It's not your enemy holding you back. It's not the world holding you back. It's not even the devil holding you back. And like the devil leaning against the building in the little story I told you a while ago, if the truth is known, there are people today that are not in ministry. I know them. I know politicians that are no longer in office. I know doctors that have lost their right to practice and attorneys that have been disbarred. I know people who have lost their businesses and at the end of the day, they couldn't blame the devil or the world. It was something on the inside that just kept pulling them down. And it is our own worst enemy. Amen. And years of good can be wiped out. And all that you have sacrificed to achieve and accomplish with your life, for your family, for others, can be forgotten. Because Mr. Hyde raises his ugly head. You know what Paul calls this? This enemy? He calls it death. It's what is at work within you as a result of the fall of man. And look at Romans 8 and number six and verse 6. And notice that this book of Romans is written to the saints in Rome. So I'm not talking about unconverted people, pagans, agnostics. I'm not talking about hedonists. I'm not talking about people that, that don't believe in God. I'm talking about people that are born again, that in the middle of Caesar's household in Rome, in the middle of all the paganism, they're Christians and they're serving God. It is to them that Paul writes and pins these words, for to be carnally minded is death. 
but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And unfortunately, we interpret death from a very limited perspective. And we must realize that at the time that God told Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die, that death as you and I describe it and define it didn't even exist then. And yet we want to assign our definition of what death is and put that in the mouth of God and think that's what he was speaking when it wasn't. Because death actually has a much broader and deeper meaning than the physical cessation of life or the stealing of the heart or your respiratory system shutting down and not working. Death actually meant separation. It meant something dying, amen, in the sense of it doesn't exist anymore. And what you need to know is that Paul is telling saints that death is still working in them. Did you see that? As long as their minds have not yet been renewed, which is this whole process that I keep talking about, you hear me refer to so often, that as a believer has got to take place as the Word of God reprograms our thinking. You get saved, but you're not there just yet. You're saved if you die. Yeah, you're going to heaven, of course. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about living the extraordinarily blessed life for you to get there. That be your destination. It's a process. And in that process, you've got to, as Jesus said, abide in the word. And then you come to know the truth. And the truth, you know, begins to set you free. I'm free from some things this year that I still struggled with last year. You know why? Because I keep my face buried in my Bible. I can't get enough of the Word. You'll always see me walking around with my iPhone. And if I'm sitting there in the car and and Jerry is driving or whatever, wherever you see me, I've got my iPhone in my hand. And if you, you look, you could mistakenly believe I'm on social media. I'm not. I'm not texting anybody. I don't subscribe to Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. I don't need to show you that I'm drinking a Coke Zero. Look, here's my Coke Zero. Really? That's so exciting. Amen. And you've got a bologna sandwich in the other hand. <laughs> Forgive me. I don't mean to make fun, but you'd think some people have never been in a restaurant in their entire life, and they've got to let everybody know. I'm not on Facebook, I'm not on Instagram, I'm not into all that kind of stuff. No, I'm not, when I'm on my phone, you know what, I've got a whole lot of Bible translations on my phone, and I'm constantly going through the Word of God, because I find out the more truth I know, the more liberated I am, the more free I am, and my life is blessed, blessed. You say, Pastor, you don't have any problems. Sure I do. But i got to tell you, I'm living an extraordinarily blessed life. I live in a fallen world. Of course I've got problems like everybody else does. But I'm blessed beyond measure. Amen. Now, you need the Word of God in you because death is at work. And death should not be interpreted in the strict, limited sense, the narrowly focused sense that it's only your respiratory system and your kidney system shutting down and your heart no longer beating. It's not what death is. They're a death of dreams. Dreams can die. Happiness can die. Hope can die. Destiny and purpose can die and perish. 
families die and the sense of the love that holds them together. And what Paul is saying, that death is at work in us until we learn and can apply the truth of God's word. And this is why running away from your problems never fixes anything. I wish I had a better amen. Somebody said, there was an old country and western singer years ago. Do y'all remember this one? Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. Well, you can take that job and do whatever you want to do with it. But you go to your next job. Guess what? Since you are your biggest enemy, when you get to the next job, guess who's going to be at the next job too? Amen. I'm moving to California. Go ahead. But when you get there, guess who you're going to find staring you back in the mirror? Because like they say, no matter where you are, there you are. Amen. You can't run from yourself. Amen. That's why to deal with the enemy inside of you and to effectively deal with both the world and the devil, you need to understand what's at work in your own life, the death that's at work in you. Because this is what the world and the enemy both use as weapons against you. Enemy doesn't stand here out here in isolation plotting against you. He uses the death at work in you to try and contribute to the undermining of your own success and happiness. The world does the same thing. Why is it so important that we understand this? It is important because in spite of all the problems we create for ourselves, and I want to close on this, even though we are our own worst enemy, I want you to know that God believes you're amazing. Somebody say hallelujah. You were made in his image and in his likeness, my brother. My sister, I don't care what you're dealing with. God looks at you and sees something astonishing when he looks at you. You were meant to become his crowning achievement. A living testimony of what God could do in somebody's life. When you become a child of God, you have the very creator of the universe living within you and empowering you. And he created you to do incredible things. Did he really? Yeah. You see, most of us worry that we'll never fulfill our dreams. You know what God's worry is? That you won't dream big enough. Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. The power's already on the inside of you. If you're a child of God, God wants to release in your life the power that is bottled up and pent up on the inside. Listen to what Paul said, and I love the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Put your hands on your heart and say, I am his workmanship. Now, you know what workmanship means. 
It means he's working on you. People think they got saved and that fixed everything. No. No. It was the start. You are his workmanship. But I love what the New Living Translation says in the same verse. For we are God's masterpieces. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. God planned some things long ago to happen in your life that will blow your mind. You were meant to be amazing. You were created to be marvelous. You were created for people to look at you and say, wow, that's wonderful. Don't sit around and cry. Make the most of your life. God wants to bless you. And this to me is what's amazing about the gospel message. God wants us to live the extraordinarily blessed life.